Hansen. Bright, good morning. Uh, I was away last week. My wife and I slipped away for a few days of uh, R&R together. Had a wonderful time, and I just want to say thank you to my dear friend uh, Dennis Fay for stepping in here and not just pinch hitting, but hitting a home run in my stead. Praise God. But however, I understand he managed to do so in about 35 minutes, (laughs) which means he set unrealistic expectations for you. So I just want to warn you that I'm back uh, and... uh, That means everything that that means. Take your Bibles with me this morning and turn with me today to the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 4. We are slowly but surely making our way through this rather remarkable little book together. So while you're turning there this morning, I want to share with you a story that I came across that I think does an excellent job kind of setting up what we're going to be looking at together this morning. Uh, It actually is a story that comes from a Women's Day magazine that they entitled Michael's Song. It goes like this. Like any good mother, when Karen found out that another baby was on the way, she did all that she could to help her little three-year-old son, Michael, to prepare for the new sibling. They found out that the new baby was going to be a girl. And day after day, night after night, little Michael would sing to his sister in his mother's tummy. Oh, isn't that awesome? Yes. The pregnancy progressed normally for Karen, who is an active member of Panther Creek United Methodist Church in Morristown, Tennessee. This is a true story. So all, you know, eventually the labor pains did come. They were five minutes apart, four minutes apart, three minutes apart, until finally they were one minute apart. But complications arose during the delivery. After hours of labor, finally Michael's little sister was born. But she was in such serious condition that they needed to rush her to the neonatal intensive care unit at St. Mary's Hospital in Knoxville, Tennessee. As the days inched by, the little girl grew worse and worse. The pediatric specialist finally had the conversation with her, the child's parents saying, There is very little hope. Prepare for the worst. Karen and her husband had uh, uh, contacted the local cemetery about the availability of a burial plot. They had just fixed up a special room in their home for the new baby, and now they were planning a funeral. Michael begged his parents, let me see my little sister, let me see my little sister, I want to sing to her. But they they couldn't let the child into the intensive care unit. After two weeks of being there, it looked like the funeral was going to come before the week was over. Michael kept nagging, I want to sing to her. I want to sing to my little sister. But again, the children were not allowed into the intensive care unit. But Karen finally made up her mind. She will take Michael in whether they like it or not, because if he doesn't see his little sister now, he may never see her alive again. So she dressed the little three-year-old up in an oversized scrub suit, marched him into the ICU, and he looked like a walking laundry basket. Karen told little, uh, towed little Michael to his sister's bedside. There he gazed at the tiny little infant losing battle with life, and he began to sing to her. With a pure-hearted voice of a three-year-old, Michael began to sing, You are my sunshine, my only sunshine. You make me happy when skies are gray. Instantly, the baby girl started to respond. The pulse rate began to calm and steady. Keep singing, Michael, his mother said. Keep singing. You never know, dear, how much I love you. Please don't take my sunshine away. The ragged and strained breathing became as smooth as a kitten's purr. He kept on singing. The other night, dear, as I lay sleeping, I dreamed I held you in my arms. Little Michael's sister began to relax and at rest. It was a healing rest. It seemed to sweep over her. Keep singing, Michael, keep singing. You are my sunshine, my only sunshine. Please don't take my sunshine away. Funeral plans were scrapped. The next day, the very next day, the little girl was well enough to go home. 
The Women's Day magazine called this the miracle of a brother's song. The medical staff simply referred to it as a miracle. However, Karen called it a miracle of God's love, and she declared, never give up on the people you love. Never give up on the people you love. You know, in a very real way, that is what the book of Galatians is all about. It is about someone who loves somebody so much that they were willing to risk everything because they loved them so deeply. And of course, the person who loved them so much was Paul. And you know, at this point in this book, as we've been looking at what he's had to say, you may be thinking, well, listen, the Apostle Paul seems much more like a passionate lawyer or an academic debater than a caring, loving friend. But this morning, you're going to see the true love that is behind all the tough words and the carefully ordered arguments. Behind all of that, there is a bleeding heart of grief that refuses to give up on the people that he so deeply, deeply cares about. What we're doing today is we're looking at Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 through 20. If you will, it is at the very heart of the letter. And if you have a pen, I would encourage you to take it out and draw a heart around that portion of Scripture because here we see the beating heart of the Apostle Paul for this group of people. Friends, the theme of Galatians is freedom in Christ to ultimately love others. And right here before us today, the Apostle Paul is going to model for us what it means to use our liberty in Christ to love others, to sacrificially love others. Just before we crack it and run with it, and I explain to you all the wonderful cultural stuff, we need to pray. Because you know what? There's somebody in your life that you need to not give up. And as we go through our time this morning, I pray that God brings that person to your mind. You'll hear what is being said. And perhaps as you walk out of here today, you will pursue them in love. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you so much that you pursue us in love. That you don't give up on us, but you continue to chase after us and woo us and love us and draw us to yourself. I pray today, Lord, that the words from the Apostle Paul, which have been carefully preserved by the Holy Spirit, even for this morning, that you would use them in our hearts and lives for the very people that we're thinking about right now. People in our family, people in our circles of influence, people that we know through maybe sports or through work or our neighbors, people who need you. Help us today to see the need to pursue them with love, I pray. In the name of Jesus. And God's people said, amen, amen. Well, we are going to jump in to Paul's discussion here in the book of Galatians. Uh, We are in the second major unit, which is the theological or the doctrinal appeal. And we are in the last of these sections, as today we consider how the law only frustrates faith in the believer's experience. And today, we're going to look at this topic. Never give up on the people you love. Never give up on the people you love. And again, the Apostle Paul shows us today what that means. So as we begin, what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you the scriptures, and then I'm going to read them with comprehension so you can understand the context. But there's a highlighted word in each of these sections that I want to pursue with you as far as application goes. So this morning, let's begin in chapter 4 in verse 8 through verse 11. As Paul expresses his deep concern for them out of a relationship he has with them. So beginning in verse 8, the Apostle Paul to the churches in southern Turkey, an area known as Galatia, he says this, Formerly, when you did not know God, before I came to you with the message of the gospel of grace, 
before you embraced Christ with your life by faith alone, in Christ alone, and experienced the grace of God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved. The idea is to be held in bondage to that which by nature are not even gods. Now the question here is, is what is he referring to by nature are not gods? He could be referring to idols or the lies tied to those idols. There's also a very good chance here that he's talking about something called emperor worship. In Antioch of Pisidia, which is one of the larger cities that he went to in southern Galatia, there is a temple that is from that time period to, to the Caesar cult, the emperor cult. And it was required of all inhabitants within Rome to burn incense to the Caesar, who at that time had taken the position of God. And so he could be talking about this imperial cult of those days. So formally, when you didn't know God and you were enslaved or held bondage to that which by nature aren't even gods. Notice he now transitions. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, isn't that a cool little slip in there he threw in? You know, yeah, I came to Jesus. Well, actually, if the truth be known, Jesus came to you. That's how that really works. Uh, we don't naturally pursue God by nature, uh, but rather God pursues us for relationship. First uh, John 4.19 says this, We love God because he first loved us. He's the one who took the initiative. He's the one that pursued us. And finally, we know him, but actually he knows us first. So formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that were by nature not even gods. But now you have come to know God, or rather be known by God. Now here's the question. How can you now turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Whose slaves you want to be once more? Question mark. This doesn't make any sense to Paul. This really doesn't add up to him. You want to go back to observing days and months and seasons and years? This would have been true under the Jewish calendar, but also under the emperor worship. They would have had all special days where you had to go do all sorts of certain uh, religious things. And so Paul ends this first section by saying this, I'm afraid, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. And so here in this first section, the Apostle Paul um, expresses a very deep concern for an apparent desertion from the gospel of grace that was going on in the area of Galatia. So that's what's happening in these first few verses. But the one word I want you to notice is this word I've highlighted in verse 11. I am afraid I may have, what's the word? Yeah, labored over you in vain. This is one of Paul's favorite expressions of how he connects to people. It is an expression that describes his relationship to his spiritual children. And it is one that is that of a mother who went through the travail of childbirth to bring the baby into the world. In fact, in verse 19 of chapter 4, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes, he uses it this way. He says, my little children, notice how he expresses this, I'm your spiritual dad. You're my little kids. What an affectionate way to talk about them. He goes, for whom I again labor in the anguish of childbirth until Christ be formed in you. So this word labor shows the unique and beautiful relationship the Apostle Paul actually had to this people group, to these people to whom he was writing. If you want to read about some of Paul's travails, I invite you to read Acts chapters 13 and 14, where you can see where he literally risked life and limb to bring them the gospel message. But why did he do it? Why would he risk? Why would he go through all the travails? Why would he do all of this? Because he loved them. He deeply, deeply loved them. We have another expression where Paul kind of talks about this, this sentiment of labor, this idea of fathering or mothering people to Christ. It's actually found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, now, I want you to hear this, and I just want you to hear the beauty of how he expresses his relationship to the people 
that he is brought into relationship with Christ. So in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 6, it says this. You know, we could have made demands as, uh, as apostles of Christ's on you. In other words, we could have wielded authority and power. We had the right. We were apostles. But rather, listen to what he says. But instead, we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you. We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Is this the Apostle Paul you know? <laughs> you know, we think of Paul, and we think, oh, he's, a, he's the amazing man of truth. He's got great doctrine. He's an amazing guy. He, he can do all of this stuff. He knows so much. And yet, it also shows us another side of Paul where he is gentle, where he is affectionately desirous, and he sees others as being very, very dear to him. You see, this is why the Apostle Paul could say some very, very harsh things to the people in Galatia. This is why he is saying things that seem so extreme and very hard and really harsh. He could say them because he was saying it out of a relationship of love that he had already established with them. And he says some things to them that, quite frankly, you cannot say unless there is a relationship of love and sacrifice and service to undergird it. And so Paul uses very direct language with the folks in Galatia. But he's permitted to say those things because he has already established a deep relationship of love with them. Somebody has said this. Truth devoid of a relationship um, almost always tends towards rebellion. Let me say that again. Truth devoid of a relationship almost always tends toward rebellion. Let's say you're just living life, doing your own thing, you know, you're just doing what everybody else does, you're just kind of going on your own way, you don't know the Lord, you're just kind of living life, and you're doing whatever comes natural, and what the culture says is okay, and all of a sudden somebody comes up to you and says, Stop that! What do you think you're doing? Do you know that doesn't honor God? You're a sinner! How do you feel about those words? You see, apart from a deep, committed, loving relationship, those words only serve to drive you away. Truth is a wonderful thing. But truth, wielded outside of a relationship, is a weapon. And the result is always simply to drive people away. There's an old saying. Somebody has said this. Nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you... That's it. Nobody really cares what you know. I don't care what you know. You can have the best theology in the entire world, and I really don't care how much you know until I know how much you care. Truth, devoid of a relationship, almost always tends toward a rebellion. The Apostle Paul expresses deep concern in very powerful words, but he could do so because he had a relationship. And so what we see in Paul is anguish. We see grief of a heart that's being broken, not merely a schoolmaster telling people how to behave, because he loved them, deeply cared about them. No one cares what you know until they know how much you care. This gets me onto one of my hobby horses. I have a couple. Yes, I do. Where did that phrase ever come from, by the way? Is that one of those things you ride but never go anywhere? Is that kind of where that comes from? Yeah. Well, let me ride this and hopefully it goes somewhere, okay? Um, what concerns me about today and much of the church, Christianity, is how many of us have these bumper sticker statements of truth. And, you know, sometimes they're literally on our bumper but there are also things that we put in social media. And they're very, very um, 
straightforward expressions of strong opinions. Some of those are political views, some of those are racial views, some of those are moral views. But when we kind of post them out there to this faceless group of people or this amorphous mob, all we're doing with those statements of blatant truth or blatant opinion is we're building walls. And we're actually cordoning ourselves off from the very people that we are called to love and reach. So much of this goes on today. And I have to be honest with some of you. I've liked you on Facebook. And I've pursued you for a season. And unbeknownst to you, I had to stop following some of you. Your statements are so, so blatant and so, so political and so, so in certain ways. I'm sorry. I'm offended by some of those statements. Not because I don't agree. But there's no relationship in those statements that just simply create walls and division and drive people away. Our purpose as the people of Jesus Christ is not to hate and debate the people who disagree with us. Or to build walls that keep them from us and us from them. The way we are to see our world is in a biblical fashion. Not merely as those on the left or those on the right. Not merely those who agree or disagree with us. But we are to see people as Paul saw people. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were what? That's how we are to see people. We are to see people who may not agree with us. People who are on the other end of the agenda. People who are in this place in their lives. We are to see them as being enslaved. We see them as the enemy, but the truth is they're captured by the enemy. And what we need to do is see those people who are on the other side of the issues from us, we need to see them more like this. This is the way Paul saw people. They don't agree with us. They're at odds with us, but they're held in bondage. They're enslaved to that which by nature are not even God's. Jesus referred to Satan in John chapter 12 and verse 31 as the ruler of this world. John in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 19 says that the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. Paul made it clear in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4 that the God of this world has blinded the minds of those who aren't unbelievers so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. People outside of Christ are enslaved to the devil. And our response should not be to throw stones at them. Or to take scripture like sticks and poke them to see what kind of rise we can get out of them. That would be a heinous thing to do if we actually saw the true condition. This is how Paul saw the world he lived in. People are merely living in obedience to their very cruel taskmaster. And if the truth be known, they're actually more consistent with the values of their father and of their their Lord than we are to ours. There's almost a sense that we should admire them, that they're so consistent. But we don't. We tend to throw stones of truth at them. We tend to mock them. And yet, we're supposed to love and to serve them. That's what Paul did. When he went to Galatia, he went there in that attitude. Chuck Swindoll. Is that a name any of you know? Chuck Swindoll? I love Chuck. He is one of the most practical guys I know. Chuck Swindoll, looking at this portion of Scripture, said this. And I think this is kind of the application for some of us here today. I know it is for me. He said this. What Paul is getting at is we need to learn to love people as much as we love the truth. Some of you need to write that down. (laughs) I know I do. You see, I am by nature an introvert. I can live with or without people pretty easily. Sorry to say that. It is what it is. I've discovered that in 51 years of living inside my own flesh. I've also discovered that my natural gifting is one of an exhorter. 
I, I, I'm a prophetic type of a personality, so I love truth, and I love to challenge people with the truth, and I love to go there. But over the years, as God is seeking to round out my personality in Christ, one of the things God is making very clear to me is, Bill, you got the truth thing down pretty well. You really need to work on loving people. And I'm like, oh, but God, that's not in my personality. Oh, oh, but but Jesus, that's so hard. You know, I'm really good with the statement, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. I'm good with personal piety, but it's the and your neighbor as yourself part that's really the challenge for me. It really is. But I've come to appreciate this, this reality, that if I'm going to be consistent in showing people the true nature of God, God is light, and God is truth, but God is love, and God is mercy. And if I'm only throwing truth at people, I'm giving people an inconsistent picture of the true nature of God. And that convicts me deeply. So if you're a truth speaker here today, you're one of those people that are like, oh yeah, love is okay, let those people who love do that. I'm the truth guy. Does it work like that? We speak truth in love, in a relationship. We need to learn to temper our mouths. We know the truth, but apart from a true relationship, all we're doing is driving people away. All we're doing is chasing them with sticks. And all they are is in bondage, and we need to see that. I love how the Apostle Paul is so beautiful and consistent here with his words. So the Lord is working on me in this area. He's really working hard on me in this area. And I just need to remember that I need to love people as much as I love the truth. Quite frankly, maybe I need to learn to love people Let me share with you something that every time I hear it strikes right at the heart of me. It is something that has come out a little while back called, uh, by a group called uh, For King and Country. Uh, maybe you've heard of them. It's called The Proof of Your Love. It picks up Paul's words from 1 Corinthians 13. Maybe you've heard it.
revealing all of his mysteries and making everything as plain as day. And if I have faith to say to a mountain, jump, and it jumps, but I don't love, I'm nothing. If I give all I own to the poor, or even go to the state to be burned as a martyr, but I don't love, I've gone nowhere. So, no matter what I say, no matter what I believe, no matter what I do, I'm bankrupt without love. Let my life be the proof, the proof of some of us here this morning that are very truth-oriented. Hi, my name is Bill. That's not a bad thing, but it does need to be balanced with true love, or we risk misrepresenting the true nature of God. And I don't want to do that. I don't want to be guilty of that, and God is at work in that in me. God is true and truth, but God is love and mercy and grace. You can get it right, and you can cross the T's and dot the I's theologically, and yet get it completely wrong if we have the improper attitude and motive behind what we're doing. (laughs) No one cares how much you know, Bill, until they know how much you care. And that has been a huge chastisement to my own heart. So what I'm doing and sharing with you is me, for me. And if it spills over and touches you, I'm sorry. Okay? We're good with that, are we? All right. So Paul gives us this deep concern he has for the folks in Galatia, but it's because he labored over them. He loved them. He birthed them. And at the sacrifice of his own well-being, he nurtured them in Christ. So let's move on and now talk more about the depth of the beauty of this relationship that Paul had with these folks as we move now into verses 12 through 15, where Paul now entreats them in humility and in weakness. Notice verse 12. He says what? What's the word? He's not thoroughly convinced that they've apostatized. He's not thoroughly convinced that they've gone away. He still sees them as those who have faith in Christ. They're still his brothers in the Lord. And he says, I entreat you. It's literally to get on one's knees and to beg. It is to beg. I entreat you. Become as I am. I'm free in Christ. I am free in him by faith alone and grace alone. Be like me. For I also have become as you are. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. You did me no wrong. In other words, you have not offended me. And now he goes back. He says, listen, you know, he's causing them to think back in their minds to when he was with them. You know, it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And when we first did our our first message in the series, kind of gave background information here, talked about on the southern coast of Turkey, uh, where the Mediterranean comes up against it, it's known for malaria. It's a bit of a malaria zone there, especially back in the first century. And there's a very good chance that Paul could have contracted malaria. And one of the ways they dealt with that illness in those days was they encouraged people to go to a higher elevation. And so he went up to Antioch and Pisidia, which was a high elevated city. That's likely the reason why he would have found himself there. So he's saying, listen, I preached the gospel to you at first because of my bodily ailment. And though my condition was a trial to you, malaria is a heinous thing. It it causes you to be sick and to get fevers and chills and your eyes can get all swollen. It's a terrible condition. But notice what he said. You didn't scorn me or despise me, but rather you received me as an angel of God or as Jesus Christ himself. Do you feel the depth of relationship that Paul has with these people? He went in weakness. He went to them with a message of the gospel of grace in great, great humility. He was physically sick. I am afraid sometimes we have a, a misunderstanding of how we build relationship with people, 
even people away from Christ. I think we think we have to be perfect. If I only clear up this part of my life, then I can share Jesus. If I only get better over here, then I can share Jesus. No, 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 no. It's not just finding a need in others that we go to meet to build a relationship for them to know Jesus. We can go to others with need. Here, Paul was as sick as a dog. And he came into that city and people just fell on him and loved him and helped him and encouraged him. And in his own bodily weakness, God used that to build a relationship for him to share Christ out of. So don't think you have to be perfect. Because you're not. And never shall you be until you meet Jesus. So own that. And now go out and just find people with need and share need and build relationship. And in that, share the love of the Lord. And so here's Paul. He goes, what then has become of your blessedness? Why are you now treating me like this? Why are you now rejecting the message of the gospel of grace? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Whoa, (laughs) that's love. That's a deep, deep, deep kind of a love. And the key here is this. It's in that phrase, it's emboldened there for you. The key is, for I also became as you are. What does love really, really look like? Paul entered into their culture. He adapted to their ways, and he became one with them. Even though he was a Jew, trained as a Pharisee to totally separate from Gentiles, rather he chose to live as a Gentile in order to reach the Gentiles for Christ. His practice of identification is what is expressed so beautifully in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 23. Listen to what Paul said. For though I am free from all, by the way, this summary statement that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 9 is a beautiful summation of the book of Galatians. Though I am free from all, I have complete liberty in Christ. I have made myself a servant to all. I'm not taking my liberty and using it on myself. I'm taking my liberty and using it for the sake of others. That I might win the more to him. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. And there's this little caveat, though not myself being under the law. I I participated with them, but I wasn't truly under the law because I knew that didn't matter in Christ. Why? So that I might win those under the law. To those outside of the law, I became as one outside of the law. Now he gives a caveat again. Not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ, which is the law of love. The law of love that I might win those outside of the law. To the weak, I have become weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by some means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. His first missionary journey, going into the southern area of Turkey, an area known as Galatia, he lived these words. I have also become as you are. There's a wonderful man of the church. He's now with the Lord. His name is John Stott. What a great name. John Stott. Venerable pastor of pastors, a shepherd of shepherds, a wonderful man of God. He said this, and I want to say it twice so we all hear it. He said this, if others are to become one with us in Christian conviction and experience, we must first become one with them in Christian compassion. One more time. If others are to become one with us in Christian conviction and experience, Think of who this person is in your life. Who is that face that you see that you would so love to know the Lord and walk with him and be able to fellowship with you on that spiritual level? Who is that person? If you want them to be like that, we must first then come in alongside them and become one with them in Christian compassion. And this, in a very real way, is really what the point of the book of Galatians is about. As we pull back, as we pull way back, and now we look at, at the, the key verse in the book of Galatians. Notice it. It is for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Paul is saying this. In Christ, 
We have been given the grace of God, the righteousness of Christ. Everything that is ours is found in Him. No matter what your performance may be, no matter what you may do, you cannot make up for what Christ did on the cross. Now, in this newfound freedom, liberty, take the focus off yourself. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. For the whole law is ultimately fulfilled in one word, and it's a verb. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Pushing even a little further, the point of faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor non-circumcision means nothing. All that physical stuff doesn't mean anything. Only a faith that's working in and through love. This is the point of the book of Galatians. It is that we will ultimately get over ourselves. We're so concerned with a slavish fear of somehow displeasing God, but the reality is Christ is the only one that can ever please him. And once we understand that and embrace the true grace of God found in Christ, it allows us now to take our attention and move towards others and minister to them and meet their needs. And that's where Paul lives, and that's where Paul wants them to live. For I also have become as you are. If others are to become one with us in Christian conviction and experience, we must first become one with them in Christian compassion the churches the churches that get this in doctrine and in praxis the churches that get this in conviction and practice honor Christ and find his blessing on the church those who don't get this or choose not to get this. Find the present to be fearful and the future to be bleak. I subscribe to a a service. Oh, we'll talk more about that in a minute. I subscribe to a service called Leader Book Summaries. And so every month they send me a couple of these things in my inbox and they're just synopsises of books that uh, people have written. And this week, the synopsis that came to my box, I gave Dennis a copy. It's called An Autopsy of a Deceased Church. <laughs> Ew. Sounds nasty. It's written by Thomas uh, Reiner. Uh, he is the president and CEO of Lifeway Christian Resources. He's also a respected re- researcher and former pastor. In this synopsis, it begins with these words. Why should I take you through the pain of discovering why churches die? Because we, know, because we need to know Why? I will take you through the results of 14 church autopsies. I won't bore you with a church-by-church report because there's so much redundancy in it. Rather, I will summarize the findings of all these deceased churches. And he goes on, he talks about the fact of slow erosion, a preoccupation with a heroic past. The budget tends to move inwardly to care for needs of the people internally. The church rarely prays together. Uh, The church has no clear purpose. The church is obsessed over its facilities. Those were some of the things I found. But he summarizes it this way. But more than any one item, these dying churches focused on their own needs instead of others. They looked inwardly instead of outwardly. Their highest priorities were the way they have always done things and that which made them most comfortable. He said the church refused to look like its community. Dying churches are concerned with self-preservation. They are concerned with a certain way of doing church. They are all about themselves. Their doors are actually closed to the community. But what's even more sad is that most of the members in a dying church would not admit that they are closed to those who God has called them to minister and reach. Our autopsy revealed that at some point in its history, the church stopped reaching and caring for the community. How can we tell? The church that did not look or reflect its community, it didn't look like or reflect the community in which it was located, or if it did, it had stopped ministering to those around them. He refers to this as the great commission has become the great omission. As I look at the death of 14 churches, I saw a common pattern. Obedience to the great commission faded. It usually faded gradually. It's not like one day they were sending out dozens of people into the community to share Christ and then suddenly stopped, but rather the decline 
was moved from an outward focus to an inward focus, it was very gradual and almost imperceptible to the members. Perhaps it would be more truthful to say that these dying churches had a great commission disobedience. They chose to ignore or not remember what to do. They chose their own comfort over reaching others with the gospel. With that in mind, coming August the 9th, 12A Vision Gathering, I want to encourage you once again to plan to set aside a little time on that evening, two weeks from today, in the evening at 5 o'clock, from 5 to 6 o'clock, it will be my privilege to be able to unveil for you the vision gathering that we, or the vision we have for the remainder of this year. And the vision is focused on building internal community and touching the surrounding community. I'm excited to share these truths with you because I want the Grace Brethren Church here in Waldorf to explode with new birth of those who need a relationship with Jesus Christ. I heard two. I want this church to explode with new birth with those who need a relationship with Jesus Christ. I had to trigger you. I'm sorry. (laughs) That's why we're here. It is why we're here. It's not simply to babysit each other until Jesus comes. It is not the purpose. And so we're going to be talking about where we're leaning in the next few months together. And I'm excited to show this to you. And I hope you'll carve out time. You'd hate to hear this secondhand. Because we're going to go from here down into the fellowship area for the next hour and eat. And you can talk to me all you want in that hour about, Pastor Bill, what's this mean? Pastor Bill, what are you talking about? What's this over here mean? I'd love to share with you. So with that in mind, the Apostle Paul, and I'm going to finish up very quickly here. He entreats in humility and weakness. And uh, so we began by talking about he expresses concern out of a relationship. He entreats in humility and in weakness. And then lastly, Paul challenges others for their own good. Paul challenges others for their own good. Notice what he says in verse 16. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They want to make much of you. This is the people trying to draw them away into Judaism and back under the law and circumcision. But they do it for no good purpose. They simply want to shut you out that, they may, that you may make much of them. It is always good, to be good, uh, always good to make much for a good purpose, and not only when I'm present with you. Verse 19, my little children, hear the affection, hear the beauty. He birthed them in Christ, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Paul so wished that he could close the distance from where he wrote this letter and where they were because he's being harsh from a distance. But if he was near them, he would wrap his arms around them and he would say, why? Why are you doing this? And he knew that in that clutch of personal relationship, he would get further than simply writing a letter from a distance. But I want you to notice this phrase, until Christ is formed in you. This was Paul's goal in the lives of the Galatian believers. Ooh, Bill, you're making up for missing last week, man. This was his goal for the lives of the Galatians. It is God's goal in the lives of our lives. And it's God's goal in and through us in the lives of those around us especially the lives of those we love. You see, I camp for a few minutes on those of us who are naturally drawn to truth, that somehow we need to learn to love people as much as we love the truth. But there are some people here today that are naturally drawn to love. Naturally drawn to love. And you need to learn to love the truth as much as you love. Lovers by nature want to create harmony and peace. They're all about the relationship. But can I say that 
you, you simply don't want to upset, upset the status quo. You, you don't want to interject God into things that need to be in, interjected into. You have a relationship, but you're afraid to say anything. So we find ourselves accepting everything without ever really leading people toward a relationship with Jesus Christ or seeing Christ formed in them. And I'm afraid that we can think to ourselves, but they seem so happy. I can't tell you the number of times I've heard people tell me that, but they're happy, Pastor Bill. Well, if the point of life were happiness, I'm good with that. But the point of life is not happiness. The point of life is that people would know the living God and that he, they would walk with him in obedience and in love, in self-sacrifice. That is the point of life. And so there are some of us here today that are simply lovers, and you can't imagine interjecting some things from the Scriptures to lead people toward a need of Christ because it might upset the relationship. And all I can say is if you think that is love for them, you misunderstand what love is. That is love for yourself because you are afraid that they will reject you. That is a wrong way to properly care for people. Paul was willing to risk the relationship because they needed Christ, and Christ formed in them. All right, let's get down to the application, and then we're done. Application, number one. Who is God calling you to pursue in love and truth for him? Is that new news to you? I hope not. You should have an image of somebody's face in your mind, somebody who needs Jesus, a family member, a neighbor, somebody. They should be right there. God's calling you to pursue them in relationship. And so he wants, who is this you are to pursue in love and truth? Put their image, their face in your your mind right now. This is called having redemptive relationships in our lives. Who is God calling you to pursue in love and truth for him? Now, for those of us who are truth-oriented, I'm going to give you a key. Something to help unlock that, that, to make it move forward. You see, up till now, you've been shooting truth at them. And they're not doing anything with it. In fact, they're running from you. Every time they see you, they walk down the other side of the hallway, don't they? Sure they do. Because they know what's coming. Okay, for those of us who are truth-focused, I just want to say this. Shut up. I mean that in Christian love, brothers and sisters. Seriously. We need to stop talking, and we need to learn to truly listen and love others first, and then out of a solid relationship, speak. Who is that person that you've got in your mind right now? If you're truth-oriented, you've been giving them the truth, but they're not doing anything with it. Why? They don't care what you know until they know that you care. And that's where some of us need to be. Now, if you are on the love-focused side of things, I want to encourage you to speak up because they need to know and love Jesus above all. Ultimately, that's what matters. Never give up on the people you love.